Greetings, everybody. Just a quick announcement before we get today's show started. It's going to be featuring an interview with James Meadway, the former economic advisor to the shadow chancellor of the Exchequer, John McDonnell in the UK. We have officially announced a t-shirt fundraising drive. I designed a Dead Pundit Society t-shirt that I've been showing off on the social media accounts over the past week or so, and they are finally on sale. So if you want to pick up one of those t-shirts, rock it this spring and summer. I think it's got a pretty nice logo. Uh, it's a play on the Dead Poet Society movie logo. Uh, it looks badass if you ask me. Of course I would say that because I designed it. I'm not that artistic, folks, but I think it looks cool. And the t-shirt itself is very, very comfortable. It's printed on a nicely fitted American apparel shirt. I think it's 100% cotton. You can check out the details on the Custom Ink website to be sure. Check that link out in the show notes. Pick you up a t-shirt in the next two weeks before that fundraiser is over. Proceeds, of course, will go to help offset the costs that I have accrued over the past six months in investing in video production software and equipment and website hosting fees. Because we're going to be launching that website in two weeks' time. It's going to be featuring all of our podcasts, video series, and written articles and content, that type of thing as well. So support this project. I've gone into a tremendous amount of debt to invest in this video equipment, and I need your help to offset that. And hey, you'll get a pretty cool t-shirt in the process. Additionally, if you like what we do here and you want to become a patron, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits. We definitely do not have that Koch brothers money rolling through the door. We operate solely on the basis of the generosity of our patrons. So we desperately need your help to keep this project up and running, and we highly appreciate all of our patrons past and present. All right, enough out of me. On with the show. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have me, Sacred Stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. And joining me today is a very special guest. He's a man I've been trying to get a hold of for quite some time, but he was on gag order as he was John McDonald's economic advisor. He had a lot of responsibilities and a big job to do over there. He has recently left that uh, role to write a book, which means that he is now ripe for the picking. He's been on a couple podcasts already. Our friends show over there on Alpha Bunga Bunga. They had a great chat about Brexit and some other things. People should check that out. I'll link to it in the show notes. We're going to extend on that conversation and go deep into building an economics for the left. Thanks so much for joining us, James Meadway. No, no problem. Thanks for having me on. It's been my pleasure. Uh, you came to my attention through some former guests of the show. They said, hey, there's this guy. He's, he's a really fantastic left socialist economist. He's working for John McDonald in the office of the Chancellor, shadow chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, you got to talk to this guy. And I reached out to you. And you said, you know, you, you, I'm sorry, I can't talk to you. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a policy guy at this point. And, and, you know, one of my complaints on this show is that some of the most interesting people that you might talk to in this day and age, particularly with the rise of these left governments, are people who are in these policy positions. But unfortunately, uh, they're not spokespersons, so they can't talk to the media. So I'm really happy to be talking to you today. Yeah. Well, no, it's nice to be able to, to speak a bit, uh, I suppose. But th there is a, I mean, there is a reason why you say to people don't go off talking to the media is that what you want is that if, you, if you're, if you're doing policy things, you're advising some politician, they're the person who's elected. They're the person that has the responsibility of taking charge of what they're saying and what they're arguing for. And, and you doing a sort of side hustle uh, or, or 
whispering in people's ears or even just broadcasting yourself everywhere doesn't help that. Uh, it kind of starts to fiddle about with the, the correct democratic relationship, I think. There's a bit of leeway on it, but not that much. Anyway, it's, it's nice to, to be able to speak a little bit. And obviously, the, the point with writing a book is to try and put down in, in one sort of, what do you call it, one continuous form what it is, I think, that Jeremy Corbyn's Labour has been trying to do in the economy, and John, the Shadow Chancellor, has been trying to do for the last three and a bit years, and then what what we should be doing next, what, what are the ideas for us to be looking at next. So it's mostly going to be about how do you make Britain work for the many, not the few, to coin a phrase. But I'm, I'm hoping, given the way in which much of what's happening here is a kind of more dramatic version of what you see in much of the, the rest of the global north in, in many, many different ways. Um, I think the, the lessons and the, the ideas will be applicable more generally. Right on, right on. I'm sure it's a, it's a relief to have that muzzle lifted as, you know, I, I totally, just to kind of circle back to that, I totally understand, uh, you know, the, 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 the chain of command, if you will, you can't have all your advisors sort of talking across purposes. There needs to be some message discipline and I totally respect that, but totally for selfish purposes both uh, as a podcast producer myself and just an interested participant in the socialist left. Sometimes you do wish you knew what was being said behind closed doors. So happy to get that inside insight, that inside scoop today here on Dead Planet Society. So let's dive in. Uh, you've got this book. You've, you've outlined it certainly in your head. It's been a long time coming. Uh, you've got a really great essay kind of making the case for the kind of political and even ethical, if you will, imperative of developing this project, this socialist economics, this socialist policy vision and strategy for the many. That came out in Open Democracy. It's called After the Cataclysm, Why We Must Build a New Economics from the Ground Up. And you open with a wonderful metaphor from Alastair McIntyre's After Virtue in which McIntyre asks us to imagine a world that was hit by some kind of terrible calamity, some tragedy, natural disaster or otherwise. This caused scientific and technical knowledge across the entire world to be nearly destroyed. What was left was smashed into thousands upon thousands of disconnected pieces, and the people who remained left behind across the world were stuck to piece those things back together to try to reestablish uh, you know, science and technology for the future. So you sort of use that as an allegory for the left going forward. Talk to us in, in kind of broad strokes about the situation and the conjuncture in which we find ourselves today. Okay. I mean, the, the, the metaphor, I mean, it's a while since I read it actually, but but it stuck with me because it's a brilliant book. But uh, Alison McIntyre is actually talking about the, the sort of the the collapse, of, the rise of modernity and the collapse of what he thinks of as a sort of unified Aristotelian morality in the Middle Ages. So, so it's, it's sort of, it's, it's a bit wild to use it to talk about the contemporary left, but I think it's, it's roughly, it's roughly where, it's, it's kind of where we are in the sense of everybody knows that, and, and growing up, I mean, if you lived in Britain for the last sort of 30, 40 years, yeah. you'd have seen that the world today looks different to how people would talk about it sometime before, in my case, before I was born. For younger people on the left quite a long time before they were born, the, the world worked differently. And the way, pe- the way people thought about the world worked differently and the way that people would talk about what you could do politically worked differently. And what you're left with, particularly if you come through the left and if you come through some of the, the smaller organisations than the left and the little different bits and pieces, which in Britain are either inside or outside the Labour Party and have been, you know, for like the last 20, 30 years or so, they, they'll give you different bits of a story and you'll find different bits of it if you end up in, in sort of academia. I mean, you know, 
half an 18 year old say go to university. So a great number of people are coming to contact with all sorts of ideas, but it's all bits and pieces. And none of it necessarily adds up to having a, a kind of coherent movement or, or a single movement that, that pulls all these different parts together without saying this is a, a big monolith everyone agreeing. It at least gives a kind of coherence and order to, to what everyone's thinking about. Strikingly in the case of economics, I think in the case of economics is sort of the, the left of the economics profession has been absolutely scattered to, to, to the winds for a good long period of time, right up until 2008 and beyond, which should have been its moment, actually, but, but for various reasons, perhaps we can come on to, wasn't. So you, you have all these different bits of ideas, but not necessarily a very obvious way to put them together. And I think one of the things that I tried to say in the essay was also that it's not just like not knowing quite what all these fragments mean. Like, why is it that you're renationalizing things? Why is it that you want the world to look like this and not like something else? How do we get there? It's also a sense of dealing with future challenges. So in other words, if you had a socialist movement or a labor movement that functioned in the way perhaps it did in the 60s and 70s, if this thing existed, then the challenges it would run into, it would have better ways of thinking about the how it would answer them. And what we have at the minute is a whole series of really big challenges, but not an obvious means to try and answer them. So there's not an obvious way of addressing the issue of climate change. Now, this makes it for, for really, I suppose, one level, it's a really interesting argument. On the other level, it's like, it's one that we have pops about 10 years to try and get right like in, in a really sort of civilization-threatening sense. I mean, that's what the IPCC reports uh, tell us, and, and they're being generous. So you don't have that sense of how you address future questions. By the way, this is McIntyre's point as well, is that the, the shattering of an ability to think about the world in this sort of totalizing way means that it's not only that you don't know the answers to problems now, you don't have to address the problems that you see uh, bearing down you later. And, th- and that's why that's why I talk about the need for education in particular uh, and a kind of political economy education and understanding of how the world might fit together and align that to a movement that seeks one way or the other to change the world. And you can have disagreements about how that's going to be possible. But broadly speaking, if you get everyone saying this needs to be different, this gets us a long way ahead of where we have been for a long period of time. It seems to me that this the shattering that has taken place presents a double-sided uh, conundrum and opportunity. So a conundrum on the one hand, a dilemma, a set of problems that we're going to talk about for the remainder of the episode, but also on the other hand, uh, an opportunity, really, because you have a, a radical openness at least in potential, a radical openness to forging new ideas and new, new ways of producing a certain kind of even like epistemic orientation to the world and kind of the totality and the vision of, of how we sort of envision ourselves as, as a human society, as what our prospects are, what we're owed as uh, humans, how we live together collectively. Uh, it's a very daunting task, but it's one that you say, you know, with – um, with the, the ticking time bomb of, of climate change, we have to address in a, in a much more urgent way, in a much more systematic way. So your book is going to start piecing these uh, things back together into a, it's something that looks like a coherent project moving forward. Talk to me about the outline of this book. How are you envisioning this monstrosity that we have well, that, that's that's, cool. I mean, that's that's probably set the, the bar quite high for, for what a, a book on, on on the British economy can do. But I, I think broadly, if it ends up being a, a kind of a, a description of what the problems we face are specifically in Britain, which you can sort of see them straight off. Like the obvious ones right now are the issues of inequality and its manifestation as, as, as falling standards of living for, for most people. The the issue of the sort of disintegration of the public realm, public sphere, including public services, accelerating under austerity, 
very, very big spending cuts, biggest for generations uh, in the last eight years or so. You see it in climate change, I think, strikingly. And I think you see it in um, in, in this kind of rise of what you might call a digital economy, the, the appearance of very, very major influential players with a huge control over parts of our lives that aren't really particularly well understood by anyone as yet. So this is this is the internet. This is the appearance of big data. This is understanding how we might use and place some democratic controls and, and understand what the, these new tools and machines are. And, and all of this is sort of bearing down as, I think, at an accelerating rate. So it's, it's, it's an attempt to sort of piece together what the progressive responses to all of this looks like, um, some of which is of necessity patching up the damage that's been done to, to British society, like many others, in the last sort of, 30, 40 years or so. Uh, I think it's fair to say that neoliberalism has, has been this huge wrenching process of taking what was large parts of a kind of accepted public life and an accepted view of how the state and society might operate and, and sort of really tearing it apart. I mean, Thatcher said this herself, uh, didn't she? That, that, and it's incredible. You don't really, apart from, I suppose, Jeremy and John and maybe a few others have been the exception, you don't really get politicians being quite this blunt anymore, this honest, you know, this is kind of, everyone talks around the things. But when Thatcher said, you know, there is no such thing as society, this is a sort of blunt statement of a neoliberal article of faith. That you don't have a sense of the social good. You don't have a government that operates in that way. That instead you have this kind of rule of competition manifesting itself as privatise anything that isn't obviously nailed down and, and frankly a few things that are. That you introduce the market and market relations into every possible aspect of life that you can think of because there is no such thing as society. And the best way to run this thing that we have that isn't society is, is a free market and everybody should sort of compete with each other. And you introduce that everywhere. Lead tables for schools uh, being one part of it. Uh, the internal market in the National Health Service being another. Privatisation of utilities being a sort of third version of that. And that kind of logic creeps out everywhere. And one part of any progressive attempt to deal with the social challenges that we now face, the ones bearing down us, but also the challenge of the failure of neoliberalism itself, I think, is to get rid of that logic. So as far as possible, you don't have market competition determining the allocation of goods and services in society. So for instance, if you take the Labour Manifesto of 2017, probably you can argue about this in terms of the sort of positives in it, the, the most decisive, or at least in some ways, the, the most sort of visionary single policy we had was making university education free for everyone, which is really expensive. It's like you know, 11.6, top of my head, 11.6 billion pounds a year to do it. Uh, we estimated by 27, I think, it, no, 2022, uh, the costing was. So it's hugely expensive, but it's absolutely worth doing because it, it gets you into a world in which instead of having to pay or borrow to pay 9,000 pounds a year, as is currently the case in Britain, that you take this thing that is hugely expensive, but very desirable and, and really like a critical part of having a good society is having people who are educated and can become educated and go out and learn stuff. And instead of charging a huge sum for it, and, and having sort of quasi-market allocation of this money. You know, universities are supposed to compete uh, for their students. You say, no, it's all going to be free for everyone. And this will be the first step towards creating what we call a national education service, modelled like the NHS, which will provide free, universal, cradle-to-the-grave education for absolutely everyone. And you do it, even though it's expensive, even though a whole load of, of you know, frankly, Blairites are jumping up and down with 
what I think are, are wrong objections about, you know, oh, aren't there, you know, aren't there more progressive ways to do this? Couldn't we target just the, the poorer people? Uh, couldn't we target just the most deserving cases? You know, that sort of thing. We, we have say, the no, same mealy mouth sort of responses from centrists over here in the Democratic Party who who knock universal programs by saying they sort of continue to to help those who don't need the help uh, the most or what have you. Yeah. It, 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 I mean, look, after 20 years of this sort of thing, and it is a compromised position, it's a, it's a compromise of neoliberalism, because you basically say, yeah, we can smooth off some of the rough edges. We accept the logic of competition somewhere, uh, wherever it might be in this case, you know, you kind of try and smooth off the rough edges of uh, paying £9,000 a year for university education by having a, a fairly ludicrous student loan system that, that's completely over the long term, it's completely unsportable. I mean, this will just become a huge cost for government. So you kind of smooth off the rough edges there. You, you do similar things with public provision more generally. And you say that this is very progressive because we are targeting the people who need it. But actually what you've introduced is a huge layer of complication and inefficiency in the act of targeting. You, you are creating a system of exclusion, which for those who are excluded feels very unpleasant. So, so if you want to receive various kinds of benefit payments and welfare payments from the government, you will be subject to degrees of testing. On, on most of the range of things now. And that testing under austerity has become extremely oppressive. It's become deeply unpleasant. Things like work capability assessments, basically checking to see somebody who wants their, uh, you know, various kinds of disability living allowance and other payments made if you, if you, if you, you know, if you, if you have some physical uh, or other uh, disability. They would try and claim these things, uh, and yet you have to go through this humiliating, awful procedure where someone will assess you very, very tightly with a view to trying to get you up so you don't receive that benefit. Uh, and it's a really horrendous process, and this is what you introduce. So it's much better to have a, a universal provision. It's much more uh, uh, fair in that sense. And if there is a need to make society more equal, if you're saying that some people are rich, then fine, we have a tax system to deal with that. That's how you deal with it. You don't say we're going to tweak the provision to try and deal with the inequality of society. We have to go to the root of the matter or close to the root of the matter, which is how do you tax people who can afford to pay for these things so you get the universal provision out the other side. But the broader image here, the broader sort of vision of society, the thing it opens up is instead of saying we have a society where the market determines everything and if you haven't got enough money, tough, and maybe if you have a sort of a nice third-way government, they might sort of eventually deign to sort of smooth some of the rough edges of that market. You say, no, the wealth of society should be available to everyone. That means making stuff free. That means making education in particular free in a similar manner to how we have free healthcare in this country. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, the, the implementation of these centrist pushbacks to universal social provisioning demonstrates the fact that these people have never had to apply for means-tested programs, right? The experience of this in the United States in the, in the process of uh, so-called neoliberal welfare reform Right, has really just been the elimination of welfare uh, in, in most places, uh, has been such that the people who need these welfare provisioning programs uh, the most are turned off by it, such that you have social workers who come into your house. I've talked about this on the program extensively. Social workers coming into your house to be sure that you don't have another toothbrush in your, in your bathroom because that might indicate that you have a boyfriend who could be potentially helping you pay the bills. And if you are, then shame on you. You should no longer receive, you know, this form of, of, of welfare assistance because you're not, uh, de- you're not one of the deserving poor any longer, right? And so welfare agents, welfare services uh, have become, you know, part of the repressive state apparatus. And, and people see this and they know it and they feel it. I mean, social workers are not your friend. They're not there to help you. They're there to threaten you and to potentially take away 
uh, your services. And so it, it just produces a, a, a disaster, you know, a horror show. And, and it's something that, uh, like I said, only these centrists who come from these uh, policy centers who have never had to apply for these services uh, would, would ever think that this was a, a, a just way of doing things. So talk to me about some of the, the, the pitfalls and traps that, that you're trying to think about in terms of framing your book. Let's, let's well, you're, touching, you're touching on one bit, yeah. uh, I think, which has been quite important to, to what Labour has argued right up until 2017 and beyond in the election in 2017, which is that, that he, there's a great deal of cynicism, completely understandably, about what government can actually do. I mean, one part of that is, is exactly the experience you're talking about, where for a lot of people, government isn't some nice, you know, the state isn't some nice, friendly, caring thing, and we're all one big happy family. It's actually really horribly oppressive, that it, it sort of dangles some stuff that you might be able to get, but then takes it away. And this is the experience of lots and lots of people uh, facing tests to see basically how, how disabled they are, which is queued up for them to fail, right? So, so the experience of government for a long period of time, for people who are on the wrong side of that, which often means if you're young, if you're from an ethnic minority, if you're basically not slotting into the sort of the nice, you know, ideal type middle class sort of upper middle class mold of things, your experience of the state is not necessarily going to be very good. More generally, there's a complete cynicism about what government can do, I think, since at least 2008. I mean, it's been building up for a while. Because if you saw what happened around 2008 and the, the, the process of the bailouts for the banks and then the austerity that was introduced afterwards, it's like it's quite understandable that people have a cynicism about what government can actually do. And so one of the parts I think that we have to, that the left has to grapple with, if you're saying we would like government to do more things, and basically we would, is that we have to win that license to say government will do more things. So you can see this, I think, quite concretely in the 2017 manifesto, where I think we won that license with a large number of people by saying that we would not be increasing income tax, value-added tax, which is sales tax here, it's about 20%, and national insurance contributions, which is really just another part of, of income tax, for anyone in the poorest 95% of the population. So it's anyone earning less than £80,000 a year, which is a lot. Uh, I'm not sure what that is in dollars, but right, right. you know, you're talking quite a lot. the operation. Yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's the richest ninety. It's the richest five percent. <laughs> so, you know, that's the top chunk of it, and that gives you the license. Once you make that promise, once you say we will not touch these taxes, this will not happen, you have the ability to say all the increases in spending we want to make to improve the NHS, to beef up the welfare state, to deliver free education. All this stuff is going to happen because we're going to ask the top five percent to pay for it. Top five percent, big corporations. In other words, you kind of want the license to do that. You're not simply turning around and saying, we would like to do all these nice things. We think government could be better. It could do lots of good stuff. And we're going to whack up your taxes, like poorest 95% of people, to pay for this. So trust us to deliver. In other words, if you're in a situation with very low trust about what government can do, you don't have that license just to march out and say, let's pay for all this stuff. I mean, people sometimes talk about Sweden or other Scandinavian social democracies. It often puts you on a bit of a pedestal, probably excessively so. And they say, oh, well, people there pay high taxes and they get lots and lots of good things in return. The government does a load of really good you know, childcare, this sort of thing in Sweden. And people are happy paying their taxes. And it's like, well, yes, because they got there's a kind of social contract here that's developed over a period of time, which is the government's going to do loads of stuff and you don't mind paying high taxes because you know government's going to do loads of stuff and do it pretty well. Also, and this is really striking, I think, in the British case, if you look for the last eight years, People's average pay for most people is falling. In other words, right, most people right. are worse off now than right. were in 2010 mm-hmm. on average. People at the top, if you look over the last year, top 10% are suddenly starting to do really well. Everybody else has seen wages decline. 
So to then turn around to people and say, hey, guess what? We're going to, you know, your wages have fallen. We're really sorry about that. Um, first thing we're going to do is put up taxes. So we're going to guarantee your wages fall. But hey, you know, maybe you get a better NHS or something out the other side. That isn't a deal that works. So the other pitfall to avoid, I think, is, is, is getting into this trap of, of not thinking through the cynicism with which large numbers of people quite understandably approach government and not understanding that a lot of people's first thought is after eight years of austerity, the impact of the crisis is still rattling through. Their first thought is not understandably their own standard of living and, coin a phrase, a pound in their pocket and how far it will go and why aren't there more pounds in their pocket. So if you need to turn around as a progressive government and fall into this sort of and I think it is a sort of Tony Blair, Gordon Brown kind of approach and say, well, we're going to kind of squeeze everyone a bit more in order to pay for things. I don't think it's correct. I mean, one of the reasons I think New Labour undermined itself during its time in office was that it, it did redistribute. You, you get this from its defenders. They say, oh, it was very redistributive. It took money from one set of somewhat rich people and gave it to a set of somewhat poor, often very much poorer people over here. It's true. It did do that. Uh, the trouble was, instead of going for the very top of the population, top 1% and the 0.1%, that, that fraction where the real problem of inequality of wealth is, it went for people further down. So it redistributed from people, yeah, sure, they're, they're better off, right? If you're on 40, 50, 60,000 pounds, you are better off than the average. The average pay is what? Tom pays like 27,000 pounds a year in Britain, something around that. So you're better off, but you're not really the problem, right? The problem isn't a senior police officer or debt head at a school. The problem is tax avoiders right at the very, very top end of the income distribution. Those are the people you need to target, which New Labour didn't. Peter Mandelson, one of the architects of New Labour, now Lord Mandelson, famously in 1996, just before Blair got elected the first time, said he was intensely relaxed about people becoming filthy rich. And they were. They didn't touch them. Tax avoidance became a, a scandal under New Labour because their redistribution was going from people who weren't really the problem. Sure, they're a bit better off, but they're not the problem and redistributing elsewhere. And that undermines your support over a period of time particularly in conditions where most people are seeing their wages fall. That, that's, the, that's the politics of it. So I think we, we need a kind of populist sense, if you like, of not going after, not assuming that everyone thinks government is good. Right? Let's not start from that. Let's start from knowing that people have a cynicism about what government could do. And your job, if you're saying you're a socialist and on the left and all the rest of it, is to try and make people's lives better immediately and to do it in a really clear, obvious way. And some of that is getting more money to people immediately. Right. And that's, I mean, that's, it's an anachronism at this point to have this moralistic, to as, as, assign this moralistic value to paying one's taxes, right? To, to, as a, as a matter of patriotism, you get that I, here I, I, among, you yeah, know, I, I, democratic. I would, like I would like to get to the point where it is seen like that. I mean, one of, one of the things that, that John announced, in, I don't think actually made it into the manifesto text in the end, but one of the things John announced was doing something like they do in Norway, which is, it's a very good anti-avoidance measure. It has a, a wider cultural impact, which is basically saying anyone who earns over like a million kroner a year has to publish their entire tax return. Right. So in other words, it, it makes public your contribution and it makes it really hard to avoid tax because like, you kind of see straight away <laughs> where the money's going and how much you're paying and that sort of thing. It really clamps down. But it changes the culture of it. It moves it from being something shameful that you're going to hide into potentially you saying, sure, I'm paying this and this is my contribution. So, so you can see how the culture could shift positively, but that would take some time. The, the issue right now is that people have been made systematically poorer, both on an individual basis, their wages are less, and on a sort of general social basis, public services are, are slowly falling apart in front of us. So you have to resolve that straight away. Right, right. In lieu of you know pay hikes over the past 25, 35 years, you've had uh, tax cuts in the United States. 
you know, yeah. wage growth has flattened, productivity has continued to rise, and people only see uh, any kind of uh, hike in their uh, take-home pay on a month, month-to-month, or week-to-week basis, uh, as a result from these tax cuts, or you know, potentially uh, it's, it's it's tax season here in the United States. People are have become accustomed to getting these tax refunds, right? Which are sure. nothing. It's sort of uh, this kind of magical money. <laughs> it's the magical money tree, uh, James. We found yeah. it. It's over here in the United States. It has to do with people's tax returns. But I, no, you're absolutely right. We need to foster this kind this kind of ethical. Um, imperative to contribute to one's society uh, via taxation and otherwise. But right now, where people are, they've been taking a beat for so long. We're not there yet. It will take a while to get there. We'll have to seriously repair the damage done to public services just to take the public spending part of it. In Britain, not just the last eight years, but but for a long period of time, I think. It's it's, it's going to be hard to do that. And some of that's increased spending. Some of that is also just getting rid of some of those more stupidly neoliberal parts of what's taking place in the delivery of of public services, of which tuition fees is a graphic example. University education used to be free. It should be free again. This would be a good, big, dramatic thing to do. I mean, the other reason I sort of bang on about that policy is is that it, it... it's, it's one of these ones where it's, um, I think the literary term is, is a synecdoche, right? So it's the part that stands for a whole. In other words, you can see tuition-free university education, and you can see it, it's big, it's dramatic, it's clear what it's going to do, but it also tells a bit of a story about what kind of government this will be. Do you see what I mean? It's like you see that you're going to do this, and you immediately know what this government's going to be like. You, you can sort of see what its approach is going to be, because it's going to do this big, bold, dramatic thing. And that's Kind of how the rest of society is going to look if you if you elect this this government. That's that I think is what it was is it was important for us. It was quite a, it wasn't this this stupid Tory thing of oh it's just a bribe for young people. Well, it doesn't work. I mean, most of the immediate beneficiaries of you getting rid of tuition fees can't even vote, obviously, because they're not a university yet. They're not eighteen, so it's not a bribe, right? It's, it's, it's something much more profound, I think. Mm-hmm. Right on. So that first pitfall trap thing that we need to think about and avoid is a certain kind of cynicism. A lot of that comes from the way in which uh, the certain kind of upper middle or professional managerial class is thrust into government as you know various bureaucrats or politicians themselves to try to translate working class and lower class demands in the state in ways that are you know at best tone deaf. As you say, right? Like people don't see social workers as their saviors. They see them as cops. And we need to sort of change that dynamic and change that relationship with structural reforms that can change people's consciousness so that they actually desire state intervention in their own lives. Because right now people abhor it. And you had a lot of working class people voting for Trump um, in 2016 of all races. I think that's the kind of – that's the dirty secret here uh, in the United States that people don't like to talk about. And this is purely anecdotal evidence on my part. But I saw it and many people I've talked to have seen it. In the lead up to 2016, uh, there were were many people – who now in hindsight, you would be quite puzzled to find supporting Trump, but they did because his message of getting the government out of your life. And we all sort of become these sort of entrepreneur entrepreneurial uh, billionaires, you know, like that kind of mentality is something, you know, in, in the wake of, you know, this shark tank reality show being one of the biggest, biggest, you know, primetime TV events in the United States and North America right now is really telling of this, that this neoliberal, the effect of this neoliberal policy has been crushing on people and they're not at all enthusiastic about the state intervening in their lives and we need to turn that thing around. Moving to the next pitfall, the next trap, uh, going beyond the cynicism, what are some of the other things that we need to be thinking about in these outlines uh, going forward? 
Well, you touched on some of that. Which is, the, the other one is is something that, that John and Jeremy both both spoken about, which is is the the kind of there's a sort of different conception of socialism out there. There's a different socialist tradition, particularly in this country, but I mean it applies all over the place. Which is it's was ended up somewhat lost, I think, in the kind of post-war period after the end of the, the Second World War uh, for Britain disappeared behind a, a tradition which emphasised sort of centralization, the state being in charge of things, the idea, for instance, that if you nationalize all the coal mines in the country, which the Labour government did uh, immediately after the Second World War, a long-standing demand of the coal miners and the Labour movement nationalized all the pits in, what was it, 1948, maybe a bit earlier than that, 46, and then didn't actually, you know, they're all going to be run for the, the, the greater good of the country, and, and they put up signs outside the mine saying, you know, this, this coal mine is now run uh, on behalf of the people by the National Coal Board, that sort of thing, but didn't actually fundamentally change how those pits were run, right? You might have people at the top who with a slightly broader conception of what they were trying to do. They weren't literally just trying to rinse every last drop of profit out of the pits that they owned. And, and British coal owners were notorious for this. And gross underinvestment and exploitation for decades and decades. Really, really miserable, horrible uh, job. So they have some sense of what they might be doing beyond that. But it doesn't really change the relationships of power and control of what's happening in the coal industry. It doesn't democratise in any sense. It doesn't give individual miners much greater control over what they're doing in any, in any way. And often you have the same people who were running uh, coal mines previously and large coal companies previously just move straight over to the National Coal Board. Similar thing with all the all the nationalised industries. They all have this sort of quality of, of you, you transfer the ownership, you don't change the control. And you don't necessarily do very much, therefore, to, to shift the priorities of these organisations in quite the, the profound way that you want. But there is a tradition. I mean, if you think of people like, again, this is very sort of Anglo-centric or Britain-centric, I suppose, but if you think of people like GDH Coal, right, in the... C-O-L-E, coal, uh, writing in the 20s and 30s, or R.H. Tawney, or, or really going back a long way to the, to the Chartists, or, or the diggers and levellers, even, in the, the sort of 1600s. There's a tradition of, of what you might think of as sort of socialism from below, of, of people organising themselves and doing so collectively, and, and taking charge themselves of where they live and work, uh, and, and, and imposing different ways of operating running their lives are on a system. And, and the Institute Workers Control, for instance, more recent example in the 70s. And there are flashes of this now, I think. You can see there aren't very large number of, sort of workers' cooperatives and worker-owned companies in this country. It's, it's increasing a bit, but it's not huge. There's still this sort of tradition there. But it's a question of, sort of bringing that out a bit and saying that, particularly in conditions where the cynicism about what government can do, quite understandably, particularly in conditions where I would say that the criticism made by the, the sort of what would you call it, the new right, if that's the right term, in the 70s, of large bureaucratic corporations and large bureaucratic government institutions, which is that they were distant from people. They weren't very responsive. They weren't necessarily particularly good at listening to what their users were saying or, or providing, you know, listening to what the people who worked in them were saying. They, they were just big bureaucratic monsters. Now, neoliberalism, by the way, just replaces these things with different, big and worse, big bureaucratic monsters. But that's that's a slightly different story. That, that some of that criticism actually has, has some bite, that we do want to do things differently. We do not want, and the it's, it's possibly the most important single paper I think we've produced on economic policy in the last sort of three years or so, the Alternative Models of Ownership document, which came out two days before the election, three days before the election, 2017, is very, very clear about this. Uh, and there's a, there's a sort of call for papers as part of the policy-making process now uh, in Labour, which is we want to democratise these big 
institutions, if we're going to renationalize, bring back into public ownership things like water companies, energy of various sorts, railways, we want we want to run them better. We want to run them with more sensitivity to the people who work there and the people have to use them. What are the forms that we can do to do this? Now that is digging into this tradition of of like socialism from below, or of people organizing themselves. It's also why we're so keen, very keen to support worker ownership, employee ownership of, of large companies. It's also why, for example, John Labour in general keep talking about Preston Council, which I don't know if your listeners have, have run into this. I mean, Preston's a, it's just up the road from where I'm from. It's a, it's a small city in the northwest of England. The council there responding to, to austerity uh, and really sort of disastrous loss of a big investment project for the town centre. Hundreds of millions of pounds disappeared in 2011, was forced to take a different course forced to build on the work of Democracy Collaborative in the US and the work that Cleveland, Ohio have been doing in relocalizing spend, supporting worker-owned businesses. And they're trying to do the same thing. They are doing it with some success in Britain, PwC. The accountants have just rated press on the most improved urban area in the country. And you can kind of see the difference there. You can see how supporting local businesses, local spending, now moving into supporting lots of worker-owned enterprises locally, is actually changing how the town centre operates. It, it makes it a better place straight away. Now, this is different to big government turning up and saying, you will do this. Do you see what I mean? This is a sort of decentralised version of what socialism, uh, or, or at least a, a break with neoliberalism would look like. And, and it's one with more general applicability. If you want you know, if you want to move rapidly to decarbonize the electricity system in Britain, you need lots of wind power. If you want lots of wind power, you have to go to where the wind is. The wind is basically in windswept, often beautiful places where people do not want either a private electricity provider or, for that matter, a public, a large publicly owned electricity provider just to slap a wind farm on them. You have to give them some ownership. You have to give them the community ownership of the wind farms you want to build. If you want to roll this out rapidly, that is the kind of ownership you need of wind farms, of solar panels, of, of this kind of technology. So, so there's, there's, there's a sort of win-win you can get to here. It can look better than what we had in the past. It's going to be a break of what we had in the past. And it's necessary if we're serious about decarbonizing the economy. Right. This is a, this is a really great follow-up to the episode I had with Hillary Wainwright uh, some weeks ago talking about sort of building the capacities of the working class and of broader society in this project of uh, developing socialism in and against the state. And it really is this kind of in and against the state, the inside-outside model that I talk about on this show quite a lot. That's really essential here because there have been previously projects that have, you know, tried to democratize the workplace, have owner uh, sort of a employee owned cooperatives and, and so on and so forth. But without the concerted necessary efforts of a socialist government to kind of coordinate sure. that, that production and those efforts to, to enable it via the sort of legal uh, legal and economic apparatuses of the state and so on and so forth. And they've run into a variety of pitfalls uh, throughout the 90s and the aughts. And so this is about sort of looking at democratic ownership in a different sort of way. Talk to us about that inside-outside strategy and how this, uh, the, this, this state sort of local cooperation takes place. Well, there's a couple of, there's a couple of ways into this, I think. Um, one part of it is, is the sense in which I mean, if you just take the 2017 manifesto right, as a starting point, it's really big, and there's a lot going on in that. And there's a, there's a lot that you're expecting government to do. And for government to deliver a whole load of things, and we can talk about this in a bit, for government to deliver a whole load of things in a way that people in government, the civil servants, have not been used to doing for at least the last 40 years, and possibly ever. In other words, everybody's been sort of neoliberal and thinking neoliberal thoughts and running government. You know, neoliberalism is a form of governance. It is a set of rules about how you do government, amongst other things. Um, 
so they're used to thinking like this and you ask them to do something different. So there's a kind of need to demonstrate even before you get anywhere near winning an election. There's a need to demonstrate on the ground what this might look like. There's a need to, there's a need to win before you win. There's a need to sort of build what you call building the capacity. I think it's building the capacity, building the institutions and structures that are already there and already making parts of this happen, which is why things like the Preston model, the example of Preston Council, is so important because some of this is already happening. Which you know, creates a good example you can point to, which is very helpful if you're trying to suggest that this can happen. But it also starts to lock in place the political support you need to deliver a very large program, a transformational program for government. So in other words, you're, you're already on the ground trying to make some of this happen. And then the final step, if you like, is winning a, you know, a, a left government with a, a transformational economic program, which finds its life a lot easier because a great part of it is already happening. You already have people fired up to do some of this stuff. And you can see, actually, you can see lots of uh, Labour councils are starting to look uh, to this way of thinking. There are candidates standing for some of the mayoral elections that are looking to, to try and put in place some of this. So that that's, I think, is, is one way of interpreting in and against the state, is that you have to do something already. It is no good sitting there. If, you, if your vision of how this works is there's a big lever in government which has been jammed over to the right for 40 years and Jeremy turns up and pulls it all the way to the left. This is wrong. There is no lever. This is not how government works. This is not how we will win. Like, things have to happen now. We need a movement now that's not just, as we were briefly talking earlier, it's not just uh, about protesting and demanding things of government. It is about making things happen now. Yeah, so it has to integrate people who are already setting up worker-owned businesses. It has to integrate councils already trying to act differently, under pressure of austerity, but acting differently. It's trying to pull all these things together, even before you get anywhere near Jeremy walking through door number 10. Right. And so that's kind of the essence of the social democratic trap then, is to, to have that causation um, in reverse, right? Such yes. that, that government sort of pulls that lever to the left, and suddenly these projects spring up from the, you know, the, I don't know, from the, from, from the loins of Jeremy Corbyn himself, perhaps, you know, if only, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you have to have these processes un- already underway and the Bernie Sanders moment in the United States is a prime example of this very thing, sort of linking into these existing campaigns, these existing uh, energy flows, if you will, to develop yes. a larger kind of synthetic project out of those grassroots bottom up initiatives no exa- exactly it uh, i think it's it's and that that isn't necessarily easy and it, it's 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 not enough we have to do more than just point at, at preston is already doing this there is set up last year run out of the the leader's office is a community wealth building unit which is a way of getting together local councils and a few others to sort of share ideas and putting some of this actually in a practical sense on the ground and, and producing results already I, I think if you can look at it's small. It's necessarily small scale because it's kind of localizing the rest of it. But once you start to add some of these things up, it starts to feel more like a movement and something that has some legs. Uh, and you know, we don't know when the next election is going to be. Uh, frankly, my working assumption is that we we'll probably end up twenty twenty two, just because Theresa May and the Tories have this kind of terror of the the general election, so they, they won't want to call one early. And legally, it has to be twenty twenty two. So that may be where we get to. So we've got a few years to try and pull this together. We might not. Have but we have. But that's what it has to look like over the next few years. That, that, I think, is the only way we actually start to win properly. I think that's the only way you start to deliver what is a very ambitious program in government, is if you were already, at least parts of it, at least some of it, at least you have numbers of people already geared up to think that this is something they need to support once you get there. 
if that isn't there, life becomes a lot harder. And, and that's not, that's not, you know, you're not, you don't have to invent some big conspiracy here at all. It's just, if you're asking a civil, I was briefly a civil servant myself, rather for my sins, I was in the treasury, but it was, if you're asking civil servants to do something they haven't done for a long period of time, you're asking them to think differently. It's just difficult, it's really hard, right? It's not an easy thing to do. Um, which, which sort of leads on to, to another point of scribbled down when thinking about what the challenges are, is that, one part of what one part of what we're doing is this institutional reforms. It has to be. It's not just saying, okay, I mean, we, we can whack up taxes a bit and spend more money. I think you have to. Uh, that is the relatively, I can regret saying this, but it's a relatively easy part of what we're doing. You know, how do we want in 2017? Rough plan to say there'll be a budget in June, July that year. The election was what? Uh, June, early June. Budget in July or so and by September. In September, everybody would have free university education, right? You can do that straight away because it's just a spending decision. You know, there may be other complications down the line, but that is literally just taking money and spending it. You know, you increase taxes there and then you spend money there. Bonk, that's it. Um, that is the relatively easy part of it. That's a relatively easy part of the program. The difficult part is getting to the point where you're not just saying, okay, let's, let's sort of redistribute some money. Let's tax the top 5% a bit more than they are to pay for public services. The difficult part is how do we get to an economy that actually in its fundamentals delivers a better standard of living for people, more control over their lives and doesn't damage the environment. Let's take that as your three things you want to do. That isn't just a tax and spend problem. If you take the, the incredible, economic imbalances uh, in the UK. I, I strongly suspect, I ought to go and look properly, I strongly suspect they're, they're comparable, at least approaching what you might see in the US, where you know, the variation among states is, is extraordinary, but in a much smaller space. So, so London has some of the richest places in all of Europe, in all of the EU, and yet you find some parts of the country, after 30, 40 years of deindustrialization, of neoliberalism, of a total lack of investment, are comparable to you know, recent accession countries, just in terms of the, the gap between how rich different areas are. It is absolutely overwhelming. And austerity in the last eight years is worse than that. The cuts have affected the poorest places worse. So it's exaggerated, this uh, this huge disparity in investment and outcomes. If you want to overcome that, it's not just spend some more money, although that helps. It is, you know, you've got to go out and spend some money. You have to build the institutions that will deliver investment to the rest of the country in good, socially productive ways for a long period of time. So you need a regional a system of regional development banks, for example. Uh, you, you need to think of ways in which you transfer power to the rest of the country out of London. These are big institutional shifts. This is building new institutions. This is not just turn the dial up a bit on your taxes and spend a bit more money. This is like big, big structure of how capitalism operates changes. And that also applies to the centre. Uh, if you take the Treasury, it's 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 its way of thinking about how it makes investment decisions are codified in something that gets called the Green Book. This is essentially a list of how to think about making investments. It is, for various reasons, skewed heavily towards not doing very much and doing what little it does in the end in London and South East. That's where investment tends to end up. You have to rewrite that. You have to change the rules. If you take, this is, I mean, that's Labour policy. If you take another one, which is the Office of Budget Responsibility, approximately equivalent to the Congressional Budget Office in the US, but not quite as powerful or significant, I'd say. But it produces regular reports on government finances. We would like that Office for Budget Responsibility to produce a report saying what is the impact of climate change on the government finances, in addition to all the other demographic things it looks at. Because once you start doing that, you start drumming into the centre of government that climate change matters and you have to respond to it, because here is a meaningful cost it's going to impose. It will worsen your deficit. The government will look worse off 
if you don't do something about this. These are institutional changes, right? And that, that's not the like, here's money in your pocket end of it. Although, and we can talk about this, some of the institutional changes will deliver that. But it is the really, really important stuff if you want to lock in place a transformational government. So it's not just five years and public spending's gone up. Yeah, you can do that. It means 10 years and the entire economy looks different. Mm -hmm. Right. It has to be a trans. I mean, what, what do you guys call the problem of the regions in Britain is a, a problem of the Rust yeah. Belt here, you know, and among other places. Yeah, You've yeah. got a problem of Appala uh, you know, App the Appalachian problem, the, you know, the problem of the Rust Belt. There's all sorts, you know, the, the, the Deep South has, has issues, although they're rebounding now thanks to, to, to you know, onshoring, which is this bizarre phenomenon that we're experiencing and have been – it's been underway for quite some time. Right from beneath our noses, but you know it's going to be structural, structural, structurally speaking, uh, transformation of of the way that we produce things, our, our industrial yep. policy, and, and all the rest of it has to be a deep thing. There is absolutely no, I mean, not to be too bitter about or too cynical about this, but there's no taste for that whatsoever um, amongst the public, and it's going to be, it's going to take quite a bit to develop that kind of consciousness amongst the mass public. You can you can win people too. Yeah. Uh, I think this is why one of the I would rate it as one of the more important, perhaps the most important economic policy announcement that we, that's been made since 2017 is the creation of what we call inclusive ownership funds, which is a slightly wonkish name of saying, way of saying that if you take uh, every large company in the country, large meaning employing over 250 people, uh, we will expect those companies to transfer into a, a worker-held, worker-owned fund, 1% of their shares every year, uh, until you get a 10% ownership stake. In other words, you basically say every single large company in the country will be owned at least 10% by the people who work now, for it. Now, is this it, close right? to the co-determination co sort of uh, policies in the United States? No, 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 because it's not, just, it's not just saying like you will have a work on the okay. board, it's saying okay. you will own this, right? So you will actually have a chunk of what this company is doing, which will give you a say in its decision-making because you collectively will be uh, a collective shareholder. And by the way, 10% share, I mean, may or may not sound a lot, but it's, it would make you for pretty much, I think, every, certainly every publicly traded company in the UK it would make you the largest single shareholder. Incredibly uh, sure. yeah. widely dispersed, right? So, and that will also, because you're a shareholder, you'll get a, a chunk of the dividends out of it. So in other words, what you're doing at this point is, is shifting wealth because you're transferring wealth to people who work. You're shifting control because you're saying you'll be a shareholder, you'll be able to make decisions, and you're giving people a buy-in, you're giving people a meaningful stake, because you do own it, you will get dividends. So in other words, you, you, because you, you have this, this collective share, when you're working there every year, you get a dividend payment as well. And the importance of that is that you're making a big institutional structural change that immediately produces benefits for people. Do you see what I mean? So it's not just some abstract thing. We would like companies to be owned and run by the people who work, work for we're going to deliver that, and because it puts money in your pocket in the most sort of basic level going, you have a stake in it. And I, that, I think, is an incredibly important part of, of, of trying to get large corporations in Britain to behave differently. We, we know what the various advantages of, of worker ownership is. They think longer term, they, they, they invest more, they have more concern with the environment, all of these things. But by giving people a stake and tying it to the structural change, you can you can make this popular, and the polling on it is, is it polls very well to almost I think quote Trump rather unfortunately, but genuinely you go out and poll on it, you find fifty five, fifty six, sixty percent of people say this is a good idea. Of course, workers should have a stake in the companies they work for, and of course, government should try and make that happen. So, so I think you can make institutional reforms popular, 
because you can make them relevant to people. You can make the stake and the changes you want to institute actually matter in a very immediate sense of the people who work and who should be benefiting from them. Now, this might be a cultural or, or national difference here, but I, I bristle at these sort of uh, proposals coming from progressives in the United States, not because they're bad ideas, not because they wouldn't deliver everything that you just sort of laid out, but because they are oftentimes conceived as divorced from a broader sort of strategy of socialist transition. There's no roadmap. It's not, it's not a sort of stage along the way towards a, a, the utter decommodification of society in, in, the, in the radical democratization of, of the way that we do things. It's just sort of a way of, I don't know, perhaps better rationalizing um, an out-of-control capitalist system or markets that aren't functioning properly, you know, if, if you're Elizabeth Warren, for example someone who just wants to rationalize markets and she really believes in this sort of put it, power. Put in the context. We put it in the context. I mean, if you, if you want to get grandiose about this, I suppose part, part of everything, I think, and this is, this is roughly how, how we should probably try and think about, you know, what does socialism in the 21st century look like? What, what, what does a progressive government really look like? What's it trying to achieve in the round? It is, is this, this issue of, of giving people a control over their lives, giving people a sense of autonomy and freedom, the rest of it that otherwise isn't really there in lots and lots of different ways. Uh, that that has to that has to start to appear. So one part of that, I think, is you give people directly ownership in a collective form, but nonetheless, it's ownership, meaningful ownership over the companies they work for, so they have some control over it and they share in, in whatever that does. That's one part of it. Now, if you stop there, you're not necessarily, as you say, changing society and wider market relations, all that sort of thing very much. You're not necessarily addressing some of the deeper issues. But if you then put it in the context of saying, well, we want sort of universalist provision, we want provision of public services without reference to the market and other services. Other services are not currently considered public services without reference to the market. Proposals for things like universal basic services to include things like broadband connection. So everyone gets a free broadband connection or a free mobile phone connection, that sort of thing. You know, that removes the market from it. There's no reason to have that anymore, but it's a free thing and it's decommodified and suddenly people have more freedom as a result of this. Well, I think the really big one here is decommodifying time. In other words, taking people's time out of the labor market and giving them more free time so they can do things themselves with it. I would dearly like, and we'll see if we get there, but I think the, the momentum, small M, is, is in this direction. I would dearly like to see a commitment from labor to saying that, you know, something like by the end of the next labor government, a four-day working week will be the, the kind of norm, the standard. And we'll do this without a loss of pay for anyone. You know, that kind of bold, ambitious thing. A lot of the unions are already moving towards saying, Actually, if we, we've got all this productivity, we've got new machinery, we've got new equipment, automation bearing down on us, we ought to be thinking about giving people more free time. Now, this is a really quite profound way of getting rid of a market, the, the, the most important market people really have a contact with, the labour market, because you are literally giving people time to do what they want with. And some people might just sit around watching you know, Netflix box sets or whatever, but other people will go out and do more interesting, crazy things. There's opportunities for childcare, there's all sorts that you can start to think about how it radically shapes shakes up society, gives you a more meaningful sense of the public realm uh, and a shared sort of collective capacity that we all have to produce things here. So that, I think, would be a, a dramatic way to work against the impact of the market elsewhere. Let's plow ahead. We could talk about all of this stuff forever in sort of broad, abstract, uh, you know, programmatic uh, ways. Uh, let's let's plow ahead and get and get through some of these other bullet points that you've you've been so kind to jot down for us and the way you're sort of conceptualizing your book. What are some of the other traps and pitfalls or or ways of improving uh, the way that we can we conceptualize these things? One of them. I, I mean, this, this is a, a sort of negative version of it. Um, I think there's there's a need there's a need to understand for, for 
everybody on the left to this is part of I think moving from protesting about stuff where you you kind of react to things. You say, okay, here's the thing, it is bad, so we protest, and then somebody else will sort it out. Right? We we don't necessarily ourselves have to sort it out. Somebody else will do this, and we react and we protest, and we ask. You move from being a party of protest to party of government. Party of government, you have to create. You have to make things happen, which means that you have to work out what are the priorities for what you want to happen and what is the strategy for how you're going to make these things happen and the two things come together so it's not just here is our shopping list of stuff you know let's increase minimum wage uh let's spend more money in childcare. let's bring in free tuition let's you know you can go down the whole list of big things and small things you might want to do it's about saying as a movement what are the top things you want to do and then maybe as a government, what are the top things you want to do and what are the less important things you want to do? And this is actually almost the art of government as such is like working out what your priorities are and trying to go through them. And that I think, I don't know if as yet we've quite got a sense in the wider movement of what priorities might be and where out of the big list, for example, the 2017 manifesto, people might want to say, do this first or don't do this first. I mean, I've already given one just because. I think you do it because it's been dramatic and in, in implementation terms, fairly easy to do. You do tuition fees first or amongst the first second things. You don't need to write legislation for it. I would put most of the stuff that is directly benefiting people in a really obvious way. In other words, it's basically things where you get more money to people. Uh, I would put most of those as priority because you want this government to be popular. You want to straight away have people thinking, yes, this is doing something for people like me in the sense that I am now better off because of this government. One increase in the minimum wage would, would be another one. Now that's actually hard to do because you need legislation for it, so it's not so immediate. The inclusive ownership funds directly, you're getting dividends from this thing. That would be something that already starts to benefit people. So you make that a priority, and then you get into the, the more sort of structural, deeper, longer term reforms. The, the delivery of investment uh, over, over a period of time. The 250 billion pounds uh, we said we want to spend over 10 years. So it's a sense of priority. It's a sense of like, how do we as a movement, in order to support this government, in order to get to this government, how do we as a movement think through what our priorities are? What do we want to do first? What's second? What's third? What's fourth? Now that will involve arguments and discussion, I think. But I think we have to get to the point where arguments and discussion can be had and we get a sense of what's really top priority and, and what can come in second or third or fourth or whatever on, on the list of things to do. Because this is a big program. If you say we're going to transform the economy, this isn't like we're just going to tweak things a bit. We're going to change stuff, like fundamentally. That means it's going to be big, and that's quite a long list of stuff you might want to work through. So, so I think getting to a movement that knows how to prioritise and knows how to think strategically about these questions, that, that's also, uh, as I say in the article, uh, a process of education. Right. Now, that, now, that attitude is well, – I'd go so far as to say it's an anathema on, on many parts of the left that we should prioritise. The, the kind of moralistic bent of the way that the movement has been oriented around primarily protest lends itself to sort of yeah. um, abhorring such prioritization, right? I mean, because in, in that sense, you're sort of choosing who's deserving, right? And, and there's always going to be a population out there, uh, a various identity group, a various uh, oppressed minor, uh, minoritarian sort of uh, kind of uh, position in society that – I mean. People are really suffering out there. That's undeniable. Yeah. And so it, it's a very difficult thing. It requires a lot of very difficult arguments and, and, and thinking to ha how to parse through this. And, and one of the difficulties I see emerging in the U.S. left is that there really isn't a tolerance for this on the left. There isn't a tolerance for this, the kind of division of labor that you need to have among the social movements. 
and the the politicians that you've got in government and the kind of policy perspectives that you 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 put forward in government. Now now I know, you know, let's just let's be very explicit about this. I know you ate shit for this uh, working for John McDonald for for many years. So how did you how did you navigate this uh this demand? Well, the I mean, look, if you if you're drawing up a program for government, I sort of touched on this, the 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 stuff that you can do quickly and easily that has a big impact is the stuff you're going to end up doing first. So anything that doesn't require primary legislation, in other words, you don't have to write a law to make this happen, is stuff that ends up being the things you want to do first. And, and that can be, you know, tuition fees is one, changes to benefits payments and welfare payments is another one you can do pretty rapidly in most cases. Unpicking some of the absolute, uh, you know, mess that has been made, I mean, appalling, destructive of, you know, people's lives mess that's been made of the welfare system over the last few years, uh, I think will have to be a priority because it, it's, you know, it's just a basic sort of moral value to doing this. Um, because, you know, people are really genuinely in a terrible state because of this, but it's also going to be difficult because some of it will require legislation. But if you say it's a priority, you go off and do it. The reason to try and get to at least to the point where, I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to get into arguing about what I think the priorities are now. I'm more saying that we need to be able to have a discussion about what they are. The reason they're able to do this is because first government is difficult and it's like lots and lots of things that you try and do that you can't do all at once, everything all at once. This isn't possible. So you have to sequence things. If we collectively as a movement don't have an idea of what priorities are and try and say, this is what we want to happen and this is the sequence in which it ought to happen, somebody else will turn up and impose their priorities on it. Right? So somebody else will, and it doesn't matter who the somebody else is. If you're a government, you get pushed around by pressure from all sorts of places. There are lots and lots of different groups and all sorts of people out there who have different ideas about what you're doing at any point in time. And if we want to push through and saying, here is a movement, here is what we want to deliver for this government right now, we need a sense of what the priorities are and what the top sort of demands are and to fight for them to make that happen. Uh, otherwise, you end up, I mean, take an example, like, you know, let's say we don't know what the relationship, frankly, by this point, what the future relationship with the European Union is going to look like. But if there's anything that a future government does that, that bumps into, let's say, state aid rules and the rest of it, and if it's got two or three things that bump into those state aid rules, the European Union will try and impose its priorities on what that government can do in terms of when it has the arguments about what breaches state aid and the rest of it. Now, you know, you may not want those priorities imposed on you. Your priorities, our priorities, may look rather different. So, so already there's going to be an argument. But unless you have some sense of what those priorities are and a shared collective sense, ideally, so everybody in the movement thinks that these are the priorities, the EU turns up and, and, and can impose these things. To take one example, you can think of different ways that this might happen. So, so I think it's, it's important we get there. And that's allied to like a sense of what is the strategy. In other words, it's not just fight everything all the time. It's like, how? Do, what do we do to build the capacity? What do we do to actually win these arguments? What do we do to get to a position where government is meaningful and says it can do things and these things happen? That, that's you know, Ultimately, that's what the strategy looks like. How do we win the election? Well, this is a step-by-step-by-step by step by step thing. You know, The next election won't be just rerun 2017. It, it, like, to a large extent, frankly, and it says a lot about our, our media and our, our political class that they didn't see it coming, uh, frankly, we had a large element of surprise. Like people did not expect Jeremy Corbyn's Labour to do well. Therefore, they grossly underestimated it. Therefore, we had a, a big opportunity to do really quite well. And that won't be there next time, right? Because people know what we're capable of. So, so that won't happen. So you, you, we're going to have to think differently. This leads on to, to another thing, by the way, which is sort of flip side of, of lacking uh, another point of scrum down, which was it's the flip side of, of lacking a sense of prioritization, which is also the, the problem of low expectations. In other words, that 
the years wandering in the desert, we're so pathetically grateful for anything that we'll just take anything. You know, it's just a sip of sort of stagnant, tepid water. You think, oh, okay, it's not too bad now. We're not, we're not better than that. But you, you kind of, you can see this sort of, no, 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 we, we have to just have this thing and we'll accept this thing. Well, actually, let's not think like that. Let's raise our sights. You know, there are any, there are huge lists of, of social and economic problems in this country like everywhere else. And we can go through what we might do to solve. What do we want to see happen to solve those problems? How collectively can we make that happen? What can this government do? And how do we hold this government to account in solving those problems? Right, because that I think is also, I'm absolutely certain John, Jeremy, people around would, I know they would, would agree with this because they know very well, because this is their own background, that, that you, 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 if you come from a place on the left where you want to try and change things, your relationship with the people you're trying to change work with and change things for is critical to the success of what you're doing. So there has to be a kind of relationship where the rest of the movement, the rest of the Labour Party, absolutely everyone, all the trade unions can see what the government is doing and apply, if necessary, meaningful pressure through that government. In other words, you're always there. You're not just giving people a free pass because we're so grateful because, you know, this is, uh, this is after years and years, 40 years of neoliberalism, we're finally making a break. It's like, no, come on, we're going to set our sights high, we're going to have high expectations, we're going to expect those to be met, and we're going to keep the pressure on to make sure, make sure this happens. In other words, what we want is, is something like, uh, I think we need a, a sense of critical friends, right? We're not going to agree on everything all the time. There's no point the entire movement just saying, you know, this is, this, these are our priorities, everyone agrees. Well, they won't. People will people argue about this. But we need a sense that together we can have these arguments, have these discussions. We can have disagreements. But it doesn't mean everything's going to fall apart. It doesn't mean that this is it, this is over. It's a split and that's it, we're doomed. We've got to have a sort of sense of maturity almost about the movement that we can have these sort of discussions, have these debates even, and it can turn into different kinds of priorities and applying pressure on the government, applying pressure on, on different parts of the movement of the party to, to, to behave differently. So, so I think there's also a sense where, you know, people's expectations need to be raised. We need to set high expectations over what a, in this case, a Jeremy Corbyn-led government can do, but really any would-be sort of left government anywhere. People ought to go into it with a sense of what it can achieve, not unrealistically, not just, you know, moon on a stick and, and it's all going to be good forever, but at least a sense of what the priorities might be and how we might get there, I think is very important. Right. I think that's one way that uh, low expectations can manifest itself, that you'll sort of take on, you know, whatever policy or whatever reform is sort of thrust in your face and you know, you'll, you'll champion it and cheer it, cheer it on uh, uncritically. I think the other way that it can manifest itself, which is a little bit more difficult, requires more digging and sort of an analysis to, to get to the bottom of here is it's just as a, as a, a kind of rejectionism. That comes and you're sort of uh, this happens. This is happening in the U.S. left right now, at least by my estimation. Others may disagree, and that's part, that's all part of this process, isn't it? Right back to what you were just saying. Uh, this is always yeah. going to be a negotiation, but in my estimation, there's a certain kind of rejectionism that's taking place in the U.S. where they're sort of digging and, and searching and desperately seeking various yeah. missteps by Alexandria Ocasio Cortez or Bernie Sanders or Ilan Omar, and they're looking, they're ex- they're excavating through their Twitter feeds to try to find. Something that they've said, some sign, right, that they can sort of – some red flag. It's almost as though they're on a first date and you're you know, sort of uh, looking for that red flag, right, to avoid uh, potential problems in the future. And I get it. I mean there's nothing wrong with that. I mean you do, we do need to kind of read the contours of these politicians and these policies and these movements. And, and we do need to be very critical and principled in, in, our, in our assessments of these things. But then to immediately jump to a rejection – Right, rather than a yeah, kind of exactly. a principled, constructive criticism, trying to take responsibility for this movement, 
it, it seems to me to be quite immature uh, in terms of the growth of the movement seems to be uh, lacking in, in that way that you've mentioned. Do you see that happening in, in, in Britain as well? I think I think it's sort of I'm, I'm kind of weirdly not weirdly optimistic. I think there's good grounds for optimism alongside good grounds for pessimism at the minute. But I, I do feel like that we we have somewhat moved beyond that point or the kind of minority belief that you know, kind of just waiting for Jeremy to sell out on and, and one or another. I think we move beyond that point. And, and as I said, I think the attitude has to be something like critical friends, right? The, the, there has to be, we're not just here to nod along and agree with everything. And equally, we're not just here to sort of take our ball away and go and play elsewhere because you know, there's no point. There is no other game to game in the inside. Right? Yeah. So, so it has to be critical friends and it ought to be, right? Then that's what a meaningful movement would look like. That's when you say, let's have a movement. This is what it is. Then if you say, and there's lots of talk, there's always been lots of talk about how do we turn you know, the Labour Party into a social movement? How do we turn what's around Jeremy into a social movement? Well, part of that is it's a capacity to be those critical friends. So in other words, it's not, as you say, it's not just like they've done something wrong. That's it. I'm off out forever. It's more like, okay, I disagree on this, but there's other stuff I agree on. And we can talk about what I disagree on. Maybe we'll get to some better place in this. Uh, you can see some of that happening. I think maybe some of the discussions around the immigration bill a few weeks ago had this character. So, so I think it's starting to happen. And that's a good thing. I mean, that, that means we'll get to better results. Right? I, I do believe that if we have a process of discussion and dialogue, and even if it's, it can be quite heated, but even if it is, you'll get to somewhere better at the end of that than if you just you know, lurch off and do whatever the hell you feel like. As a rule, you know, you learn from each other. This this is enormously sort of hippie end of let's all hold hands and sing. But like, it's you know, th- th- there is something important about that collective learning process. And I think we are back once again into that need for education on the ground and a need for a, a sort of bottom up economics education and other political education where people can learn from each other and, and learn from mistakes in the past and learn from learn to understand what government and, and opposition and all the rest of them might be doing now. So let's wrap up here with, with just that very topic. I mean, I, I myself have a certain vision of how that takes place. It's part of the reason why I started this. Well, it is the reason why I started this podcast. It's certainly not because I like the sound of my own voice or because I've, you know, I'm particularly suited for this. I just think it's, there's a desperate need for anyone and everyone to do whatever they can in whatever place they find themselves to spread these ideas and to, to enhance people's uh, level of uh, sophistication and, and experience and knowledge base uh, around these around these topics. Um, how do you see this playing out? What's what's your grand vision? You've, you've recently stepped down as, you know, the economic advisor to the shadow chancellor. You, you see, do you have a grand project in mind, a vision? You're a fellow, you're a fairly young guy. What kind of world would you like to contribute to? And, and what are your plans moving forward in the next decade or so? Well, the, the issue here, look, the plans for the next decade should be the same as everyone else's, which is we need to deal with um, climate change and all the other environmental catastrophes bearing down. So that, that's like your number one thing that you're going to be doing, that we're all going to be doing, whether we like it or not, for the next 10 years or so. Um, that's in a rather negative sense what it looks like. In the more positive sense, I think there's a need, because I, I do feel like, Jeremy is, is bedded in as, as leader. The movement in general is bedded in. The changes, the shift to the left has happened. There is a need, particularly after the 2017 general election, to think about what we do next. How, how do we deepen this? How do we broaden this? How do we go from saying, if you take, this isn't, this is a bit sweeping, but you could say the 2017 manifesto is like, deal with neoliberalism. Let's uh, get to a sort of basic social democratic, you know, recognizably European social democratic setting for the country. 
which would be great if we get there. It would be a huge step forward from where we are. My issue is that if we look at the, the social problems that are bearing down, it's climate change being the obvious one. As I said, I think the issue of like what's going on with the digital economy and the way it's, it's ownership and control of data and the way that this is now playing out. Um, and both of these things, by the way, will be doorstep issues, I, I think, by the time the next election rolls around. There'll be things that people are raising on the ground in a fairly immediate sense because they'll be unavoidable. But thinking about what we might do as a left to deal with those things is going to be quite a sort of long-term challenge. And that, that that's where we need to get to, I think. And that is, again, this is like the, the issue of education is not just learning by rote. Here are a list of things you can say about the economy. Here is a list of things that, that this is what Labour will do in government. It's also the process of knowing how to pose the question and being able to think in a sort of imaginative but disciplined imaginative way about what the answers might be. And that, that that's something that, that is already happening, regardless of whether I think it should happen or not. People are already looking to do this and have been for, for a time. The, the world transformed this parallel conference, the Labour conference, uh, that, that a bunch of activists set up. You know, it's run every year. It's got bigger and better each time. There are now sort of local and regional versions of this being set up. That's part of it. So this this process of not just learning, you know, by rote a bunch of facts and things you can repeat on the doorstep away, but that's important, but it, it's not all of it. It's also the learning how to understand what the questions are and how to understand how we might get to those bigger answers. So that that's the kind of the deeper, longer-term movement-building part, I, I think, that needs to happen over the next few years. So it strikes me that there has been no shortage of policies over the past 10 to 20 years or even you know even through the neoliberal era there's been no short shortage of wonks no shortage of policy centers think tanks white papers uh, various you know wonkish conferences and so on and so forth the novelty the 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 new thing that is arising here i think in the past couple of years has been that the left and even the progressive, you know, any 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 you know part of the spectrum to the left of the center, is now thinking much more seriously about how do you get there, right? Not only yes. just in terms of what is the right policy here, how do we envision a better society, but how do we get there? And and it, we we there's been there's been a significant amount of improvement there, but at least in my estimation, we have a lot more that's required, much more that's required. We have to be able to to develop a roadmap of sorts and, and have the confidence and, and almost kind of the hubris to do that, right? To suggest that maybe we do have the answers. Because I think, you know, you have a similar uh, pedigree as I do on the Marxist left. And, you know, you've, you've heard this sort of uh, this trope that arises. Well, well, you know, we're not supposed to lay out blueprints. This isn't what Marx wanted. He didn't want a blueprint for societies. So we're, we're not supposed to be the one to say, you know, this is a certain kind of a, like, you know, faux humility or whatever. Uh, that yeah, sort exactly. of co- covers over a fundamental lack of uh, ideas or or what have you. How, how do we move beyond this and have confident visions, uh, blueprints even, if you will, of how to move forward? Well, that's, that's, that's a tough one because, I mean, part of that is, is – part of that I think is, is learning, learning how to – learning how to criticize or, or learning a way in which you can think what is happening in society meaningfully. In other words – Criticize what is happening in a way that point that, that already point you towards a, a kind of solution, and operate in a way that, that you can think longer term beyond what is this immediate problem, how it might fit into a bigger picture. So, learning to think about the totality of what's happening in society in one form or another, I think, would be broadly a, a very useful step. I mean, if we're thinking about what, if you like, blueprints start to look like, this this is where we need to get to. That that's that's extremely abstract, but but you can you can I think it's happening already. I think there's there's a real thirst out there for people to try and 
understand, I mean, particularly after 2008, which is you know, over 10 years ago now, but you can see there's a real thirst for people trying to understand a world in which the large institutions that are supposed to tell you what's going on and are supposed to be in charge of things and either don't really know what's going on. I mean, this is the distrust of the, of the media that is incredibly widespread now, or aren't really in charge of things, which is the distrust of government. And, and frankly, you know, the media don't really know what's going on. Government doesn't really, particularly Britain isn't really in charge of things. So, so, so you, that cynicism is producing a desire to try and understand the world. And that can go off lurching in all sorts of mad and, and quite often not very helpful directions. But once we get to a point of understanding a kind of our own history, particularly on the left, and learning from some of the mistakes, some of the successes of the past, and learning what the history of the Labour movement to the left is, I think that can help you start to formulate useful, interesting criticisms of what exists now and useful and more interesting ways of, of doing policy in the future. I mean, that, that, that's my hope at least. As I said, I'm reasonably optimistic about this. Under the circumstances, very optimistic. But I think there are very, very good reasons for hope at the minute. And you can see it in the movement that's grown up around Jeremy Corbyn's leadership Labour Party in the last sort of three years or so. I think that's absolutely right. One of the things, one of the reasons why I dive into you know British politics the way that I do on this show, being that the majority of my audience is in the United States and North America, is because I think that you guys are really uh, sort of on the cutting edge here. You're really leading the way in terms of thinking through these these dilemmas and these imperatives um, in, in very concrete ways, but also in very idealistic ways. You're a very optimistic guy yourself, and that's that's a rare thing uh, coming out of uh, you know you were you were working inside the belly of the beast, if you will, uh, for a few years, and uh, so it's heartening to see that. Any parting words for the people in terms of um, assessing the political moments, uh, how to gain political education, any uh, any particular websites? Uh, centers that you'd like to sort of shout out here? I should have prepared something to, to say to this really. Uh, um, what, what about just being, you end up talking about what if I just been reading that's really interesting or whatever. I think the, the one to get, the one to think about is, is what we're talking before recording started. Uh, and I touched on it just briefly is the idea of structural reforms and of thinking through what the really big institutional changes that we can make plausibly that a government can make that would work and that are also popular and that start to lead us in a, in a different direction in other words not just sort of smoothing off the rough edges of neoliberalism a bit of redistribution or whatever but really get into into the guts of how capitalism operates and thinking through what are the changes that we can make to those big institutions to how corporations function to how government functions that start to lead and point in a very different direction so the issue, I think Andre Gortz called it non-reformist reforms, which is a bit of a sort of notable, but really, really sort of structural changes. Uh, Ed Rooksby has, has written uh, about this recently. I uh, started reading one of his recent essays on this. Andre Gortz is, is the person most associated with this approach. So I think that's worth reading. I think that's worth yeah, looking yeah. at. Well, strong, hard agree here. I know you're a busy guy and there's just no way you could possibly listen to uh, you know the entire back catalog of DPS, but this is a constant theme on this show. So listeners, that will be well taken amongst uh, our listeners here. You have to have a state theoretical orientation. It's that That is the roadmap. It's, the, it's a topographical map, uh, perhaps. You know, there's the, 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 the streets aren't quite labeled the way you'd like, and uh, sometimes you don't know if that's a, a crevasse or a, or a lake. Uh, or, or a beautiful meadow up ahead. Uh, but uh, it, it does give you the kind of the contours and the shapes and, and, and the kind of, uh, you know, that conjunctural analysis that you're, you're going to need in order to not only have this beautiful white paper and this shiny policy, uh, but, a, but a, mm-hmm. a, a vision of how to see that through um, in, in sort of this kind of uh, bottom-up way. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about this. 
Uh, James Meeway, you're on the cutting edge of all of this stuff. Very knowledgeable guy. Well, I really enjoyed this conversation. I know uh, I appreciate you uh, sort of going along with me in, in, in these kind of abstract discussions. I know this is very difficult for a guy like yourself to, to, to speak in abstract ways. You're, you're much more probably at home in – I'm very crude. Yeah, that, that's the problem. Well, you're uh, much more at home in the specifics. That, is what it is, rather than uh, floaty abstractions. Unfortunately, it's it's the English empiricist tradition that, that gets. That's right. Well, that's 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 where you're sharp. So I do appreciate you sort of going outside your comfort zone here, in a sense, to talk about these kind of abstract uh, uh, outlines that are beginning to take shape. And uh, we all look forward to your book. I know uh, when, when's the approximate date when that's going to come out? Maybe late summer. End of this year, early next. Uh, I would have thought. Okay. Um, so much, much more work needs to be done there. You know, you'll, you'll be putting out some essays along the way, I'm sure. And uh, you'll have to come back in a year's time or so and uh, talk about that book and let us know what you've been up to. Thanks so much for joining us on Dead Pundit Society. Thank you. And that concludes today's episode with James Meadway. Thanks again to James for joining us on the program. He is a wealth of knowledge and he has been in the belly of the beast for the past few years. So it's going to be interesting to hear his insights on how we might work towards a democratic road to a socialist transition. Really glad to have that guy on our side. He's an asset. Anyway, if you like what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron of the Dead Punnett Society. As I mentioned in the beginning of today's episode, we definitely do not have that Koch brothers money rolling through the door. We are not funded by any foreign government. And uh, the likelihood of us ever having any corporate sponsorships are, quite frankly, nil. So we need your support to keep this thing going. I know that there is a crisis of overproduction in the podcast and socialist media left realm. I mean, these are good problems to have. You know, when I started this project over two years ago, I was one of the few people on the block. And now the neighborhood is quite crowded. And I recognize that there are a lot of really great projects out there that deserve your funding and your attention. But uh, I think we do something here that's very unique on Dead Planet Society. So if you like what we do and you want to help contribute to this project, head over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and find a tier that suits your budget and your needs. We have a lot of rewards that go along with your support. Uh, Check that out on Patreon. You can see for yourself. Even if you're not interested in the rewards, we need your support nonetheless. We are launching our video series on YouTube. We really hope to combat the alt-right hegemony that is enjoyed over there on that platform. There just aren't enough socialist creators making videos to counter that right-wing narrative. And we want to contribute to that. And you can help us do it by heading to patreon.com slash deadpundits. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you later on in the week. We've got some really great episodes coming up. Dead Pundit, out. Oh, this you crazy mother...